Hi, I'm Len Epp from LeanPub, and in this Front Matter podcast, I'll be interviewing David Clinton. Based in Toronto, David is the author of a number of books, video courses, and articles on cutting-edge technical subjects. In his books and courses and articles, he covers areas like learning Amazon Web Services and Linux. David is a Linux server professional and has worked on real-world deployments in traditional data centers and the AWS cloud. You can follow him on Twitter at David B. Clinton and check out his website at bootstrap-it.com. David is the author of the LeanPub books, Solving for Technology, How to Quickly Learn Valuable New Skills in a Madly Changing Technology World, and more recently, Manage AWS, Manage AWS Resources Using Ansible, The Super Short Guide to Cloud Automation. In this interview, we're going to talk about David's varied background and career, professional interests, his books, and at the end, we'll talk about his experience as a content creator of, of videos and books, and I should mention books that are both conventionally published by publishers like Manning and Wiley, and also some self-published books as well. So thank you, David, for being on the LeanPub Front Matter podcast. Thank you for having me. It's a, it's a great opportunity. I always like to start these interviews by asking people for their origin story. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit, a bit about where you grew up and how you first became interested in technology. Um, well, I was born in Toronto and a long, long, long time ago, back in the early 60s. Uh, and I did in, in high school um, briefly, uh, I, was, I was introduced to programming in Fortran uh, and uh, I, I, it, I enjoyed it to a point, but the bug didn't bite uh, that deeply. Um, I just the, what were the the uh, the, the other guys the, the guys who were really good at it were were spending hours and hours um, writing programs that would print on tractor feed paper X diagrams of Snoopy. <laughs> I remember the you know the lots of X's with the Snoopy in his doghouse, and that was cool, I guess, but. Uh, um, it, it didn't bite me that deeply. One of the guys, actually, my, my brief brush with fame, uh, one of the guys in that group was actually Rob Sawyer, who became a, a very well-known uh, science fiction writer oh, wow. uh, from, from Canada. But at any rate, uh, that's, that's the end of my brush with fame stories in life, I think. Um, uh, but the, it was really utilitarian. Uh, years later, um, I, uh, I had a book I wanted to write, and a neighbor who... who just got me his uh, got me a spare unused XT computer, um, the uh, that, that with with the 640 screaming kilobytes kilobytes of RAM, and uh, and taught me how to use was it Word I guess it was WordPerfect 4.2 for DOS, unless I'm mistaken. Uh, and uh, I started writing uh, writing it's basically just to write books, but then it it, it developed once I had the tool. I, I was uh, very curious to see what else I could do with it. And I, uh, I taught myself to program a little bit in BASIC and then Visual BASIC and uh, put together some, some resources that uh, might have been of some use to someone somewhere. And uh, it just uh, it had bitten and, and bitten deeply by, by that point. And I, there was whatever I could, uh, whatever I, I saw that could be done with it that was uh, useful to me, I did it. And, and uh, it expanded and went from hobby to career. And that career, uh, as I understand it, it initially took the form of... Uh being a high school teacher and vice principal. Right, although that was before technology. Really, was still the technology was still a hobby at that point. Okay. I, was t I was teaching other topics, and, and I was, by the, along the way, uh, as a side hobby, uh, a helpful uh, device, I would, I would build their, the, the school's networks and, uh, and manage their IT um, and, uh, and uh, did the same at home and for other people who needed it. And, and that, I'm a, it, it was an interesting hobby, and it, 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 it was a challenge, but it, uh, it did eventually lead to, this, to my second career, or third career, or whatever that might be right now. I'm sure the schools must have been really glad to have you around. Um, before I ask you a, a question about high school teaching in Ontario, um, what subjects did you teach? 
I'm sure there were probably many over the years. Yeah, I touched on history and, and uh, some law, and uh, it was uh, that, that you know the old joke in the academic world is uh, you know read the book. I haven't even taught it yet. Uh, by no means do you have to know anything to teach. Uh, it's useful to have skills as a teacher, and it's definitely useful to be enthusiastic and idealistic and really want to to share something of value with your students. But by and large, knowledge isn't isn't really critical, <laughs> at least until you step into the classroom. Then you better know something. Yeah, and uh, and uh, one thing um, we were talking a little bit before before we started recording this interview, uh, and uh, one of the fun features of this podcast is that I get to interview authors from all around the world, and they often have local knowledge of things that people might have only read about in the headlines. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the issue of violence uh, in Ontario schools. Uh, Ontario is the province in Canada that the city of Toronto is in, yeah. uh, where David's from. And I think a lot of people might be surprised to hear that there is a problem in parts of Canada with school violence. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I never experienced it in uh, in my own teaching, um, but uh, that was uh, a bunch of years ago, and it was also a much, much smaller as a private school. Um, but I, I do have, uh, I have, uh, have uh, colleagues who, who are in the front lines, and, I, and I've read uh, the local reports. Um, it's a problem. There, there hasn't been gun violence, as I, as I remember, in Ontario, but there's been a lot of other problems. And as I, I mentioned to you earlier, um, the, uh, some school districts in Ontario now provide body armor, Kevlar body armor, to some of their middle school teachers because uh, there are in many classrooms children who can't be or, 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 or aren't restrained and, and uh, can actually do, do damage to their, to their, their peers and their teachers. Uh, why this is happening and is it connected to the, the the shootings in the United States and elsewhere? I have no idea, honestly. It, it's a there are many factors in a in a complex society that like we live in that that can lead to well alienation and and uh, and, and uh, depression. I, I don't know really. I, I can't, I'm not an expert, and I don't think anybody's really an expert to be able to nail it and say this is why it's happening and this is what we can do to solve it. Everybody wants to know. Nobody wants to see this. But education is pretty much impossible under those uh, under those in that kind of environment. There are schools obviously that are a lot better than others, and there are classes that are a lot better, and there are teachers who are a lot better managing than others. But that's you know it takes experience. I always joke that a teacher. Um, when he starts or she starts, is is idealistic, enthusiastic, and filled with energy, but has no clue how to teach. Uh, when they, the career ends, usually around the time of burnout, uh, they're they're they've got loads of experience and know exactly how to manage a classroom, but they're burned out. There are in the middle, uh, there's that point when they have enough experience and still enough enthusiasm that they can do a great job. But then, unfortunately, it only lasts about 45 seconds. But of course, I exaggerate. But but it's a uh, but it's um it's a uh, it's it's not every teacher who can uh, can be running on all cylinders all the time. We're human, and and uh, all the teachers I know do their best every day, in every minute of the classroom and every you know beyond the classroom. But it's uh, it's to be perfect is an impossible task. Um, why? Schools and, and and teachers, of course, are not entirely to blame, or maybe not at all to blame for violence. And it's that those are two separate domains. But why violence happens is is a very big question that all of us really want an answer for. And I don't know. I, I've heard I've heard answers, and none of them ring true. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's such a deep 
issue. Uh, it's you were just reminding me. So my dad, um, when you were talking about, you know, people often don't spend their entire career as as teachers because of burnout and things like that, or just the challenges or wanting to move on. And my dad actually taught high school for a couple of years in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, uh, in the 1950s. Uh, oh, okay. And he, he occasionally regales people with stories of basically like the Fonzie type pompadour, <laughs> real creamed kids with li- literal switchblades who he had to disarm. And he never really talked about the sort of like what, what he thought the reasons were other than, you know, teenagers are kind of crazy. Uh, and especially if you throw poverty and sort of risk into the mix, then weapons sometimes appear. I guess, yeah. I mean, I mean, yeah. There's up to a certain point. It's just kids being kids. Um, they uh, sometimes they 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 are kids in ways that are dangerous and reckless and have to be controlled. But um, I don't know if it was even in the fifties that there was anything like the. Um, well, I don't even know how to describe it. In, in some cases and in some environments, it's almost uncontrolled. But I don't know. I wasn't there in the 50s, and, I, and, I, and, I, uh, and I'm not really there now, so I, I'm really just guessing. But it's a problem. Violence is a problem that has to be addressed somehow. Um, so my next question uh, is related to a question that often comes up on this podcast, which is when, I, when I'm interviewing people who sort of write books and have careers in computing technology, the question I often ask is, if you were starting out with your career now, would you spend four years doing a formal computer science degree at a university, or would you choose another path given the you know, plethora of, of rapidly evolving educational resources out there? And I guess as a, as a, sort of, as a former high school teacher, if you were teaching in high school right now and someone came up to you and said, I want to be a software developer, should I go to university or not? What would you say to them? I actually get asked this question a lot. And, um, and I'd say that there, there are different reasons for wanting a university degree. And some of them are, make a lot of sense and some of them make a lot less sense. Uh, if somebody is at the age of 18 or 19 confident that they, they, they enjoy coding and they, 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 they want to, uh, uh, they, they can see themselves making a career of it, I would generally recommend that they, depending on the kid, of course, but, but I would generally recommend they don't go to university. If you want the skills uh, that will make you good as a coder, then you don't need to go to university. In fact, going to university will uh, very often by the time you're finished, the, most of the skills you've learned have, will will have will have dated, and and uh, and and they won't be they won't be nearly as worthwhile as they were six or seven years ago when the curricula that 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 under underwrote them were written. I had an ex- I, I worked for a company in Ottawa, um, HCN Hotel Communications Network, and the lead developer at the time, I asked him, would you take a kid out of high school with uh, good programming skills and a good portfolio, but would you take him actually to work for us? He said, who needs high school? The and he was actually quite serious. He he said it takes when he takes a developer. This is uh, six seven years five or six years ago, I guess. When he takes a developer, a new guy fresh out of university, the first six months he has to deprogram him from all the bad skills he learned in university. That's from his perspective. Obviously, not everyone's going to see it that way, but certainly there it's so easy to pick up solid skills now, ad hoc. Just off the internet from Pluralsight, if you want to take Pluralsight courses at, at, uh, where I create courses, or free at Free Code Camp, which is a fantastic resource, uh, or a thousand other places. There's so many places you can learn to program or learn to be a system administrator or learn all kinds of skills. 
And if you're motivated, if you if you uh, if you're clear about what you want, or relatively clear about what you want, you can do it on your own. Save yourself a tremendous amount of time, and of course, all the opportunity costs. The, the four years you're in university, you're not working and earning a living. Uh, on the other hand, uh, there are certainly people who. Um, per, I, I mean, I never recommend people go to university with a no clue what they want to do because that can be an enormous investment that that doesn't pay off in the end. And they may change their mind a half a dozen times during the four years, which will always stretch out to six or seven years because, of course, universities have economic interests in, in incentives in keeping you in university as long as possible because every extra semester is more money. So they, uh, when you transfer credits from one program to another, one college to another, then there's usually an extra six months or an extra year you'll spend just to make up the credits that don't transfer. So there are a lot of risks in going to university. But if you're fairly sure what you, what, what you want to study – and you feel that you need the maturation, perhaps, or the uh, maybe some people talk about the social skills, although universities don't always teach the right social skills, <laughs> if you've ever been in a dorm. Um, so uh, then th there are there is a case to be made for uh, a university computer science degree, because obviously some jobs will only go to people with computer science degrees. So the, if if you if you really uh, if you have you have a, a background in physics and you want to make that part of your career, then I guess you'll need university because physics doesn't you can't guarantee you can't demonstrate expertise in physics without having without having a couple of degrees behind you. So, but but for a lot of people, I really think you can make a go of it quickly, efficiently, and and cheaply without a degree. Thank you very much for, for sharing that from that from that perspective. Um, it's uh, one of the reasons I love asking people this question is because there there are all these sort of built in paradoxes to the choice you have to make when you're say eighteen and graduating from high school or seventeen. For example, how do you know what you want to do when you don't know all that much about the world yet? Yeah, um, there's no there's no there's no quick solution for that. The lucky few. I mean, I had a student in high school uh, who. When he was 14 or 15, I don't remember, um, it was already was offered a summer job from by the RCMP, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police uh, in Ottawa, um, working on their website or something like that. I, I don't know how that happened. I'm not sure it was a serious offer, but but he was the kind of guy who just picked up. He absorbed talent almost almost unconsciously. The skills just came to him. And uh, so a guy like that, by the time he was 18, he actually uh, had a lot of marketable skills and could have made a go of, uh, of a lot of different careers right off the bat. In the end, he went to law school, and, he, and he's doing very well as a lawyer. But, but um, certainly there are some kids at 17 or 18 who are lucky enough to, to have skills and know what they want to do and how they can do it. But you're right. There are an awful lot who don't yet, and, and uh, you can make choices that are – uh, that are that are in hindsight weren't the best choices. So with the, if you do you know, the investment of university, especially in the United States, where it's so much more expensive, is a, an enormous investment. The wrong choice has much greater consequences. The investment of trying a couple of careers without without necessarily a full university degree is a, a lot lower. And if you make the wrong choice, the consequences are much less consequential. So you have a little bit of an advantage, I guess, if you don't know what you want to do, to keep as many um, alternatives open as possible while not being crazy about it uh, by, uh, by experimenting. That's what the apprenticeship program was so great uh, over through the Middle Ages and the last eight, nine hundred years or longer. Uh, often young people, probably the age of 12 back in the Middle Ages, uh, would apprentice to a master and they would learn to trade for a couple of years and earn their food. And from then on, they had a career. 
and the there have various government organizations in around the world have, have been tried to recreate versions of the apprenticeship program with varying levels of success. But I, I'd say that IT is a fantastic domain for apprenticeships. There there is a lot that can be gained uh, by a company, let's say a mid-sized company that wants to have a a nice flow of new talent. They could open up a, a, a one end of one of their rooms in an office where they have a couple of developers or, or, or uh, sysadmin sys guys, and, and they, uh, they can get 18, 19-year-old kids to come into to their office and do work and uh, be guided, be mentored by the professionals. And after a year or two of that, they may have uh, crackerjack programmers to work for them. But either way, the, the, the people who are being mentored have uh, new skills. Yeah, it's really, it, that's a really, uh, I, mean, I, would, I don't want to get derailed and go on with it yeah. for too long, but it actually is something that comes up on, on this podcast all the time. And, you know, because LeanPub um, is a platform that's often, you know, with ed, more or less educational material, uh, it's actually probably an important thing to talk about. But one of the one of the interesting features of that kind of apprenticeship type program, um, I believe in Germany, there actually is a sort of like two track system. At some point in what we might call your sort of middle school years, you either go down the, as it were, the academic route or the trade route. Um, right. And there is a popular discourse about, you know, not everybody's suited towards university, but there's also a popular discourse of how, how the fuck do you know? <laughs> right, right. It's, it, it is, it's, it's frightening. Yeah. In England, it used to be, in England, it used to be the, the um, A levels and O levels. I think they, they split at the age of thir 13 or 14 and it's frightening. It you didn't perform quite as well as you wanted to at the age of 13 and then you're done. So that is a that's a it's a frightening choice to have to make or to have made for you indeed. But um, having said that, the, the alternative, I don't think it's rational that everybody should go to university because I, I don't think it's a it's a good use of resources. I don't think it's a good use of human human beings. Not everybody should be there. And as almost everybody knows, a lot of what goes on in university in a lot of cases has nothing to do with education. Is... Yeah, yeah, that that no, that's true. And uh, sorry, sorry, just just to go yeah. on about this a little bit more because it is something I think okay. a lot. But um, one of the things I like to say that's a secret to having a middle class life is actually the people that you meet in your university years, if you happen to go. Right. So, right. so for example, the veneration that a lot of people have for doctors and lawyers, you lose precisely because you lived in the dorm with the ones who became, <laughs> if you know what I mean. Yeah. Uh, you know, yeah, and, and yeah. but also like, you know, for example, I got, I used to live in London and I got called up for jury duty one day and, you know, I could call my friend who was like, you know, a barrister in the inns of court uh, mm. to ask him, you know, how does this all work? Um, yeah. And uh -huh. I, I, you know, growing up in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, I never would have had the opportunity to have friends like that to call upon. Like, you know, if I, you know, if I've got an ache in my back, I call my doctor friend, if you know what I mean. Right. I actually don't do right. that. But, but um, there's, there's sort of much of what goes on at university that doesn't have anything sort of strictly to do with the classes that you're taking or what you're majoring in actually sure. can deepen your, your network in a way that you might not have an opportunity to do. Absolutely. Which, which is on, just on the, another reason that it's such a big decision and so complicated. Yeah. Uh, just moving on, um, you recently published an article called Why is so much enterprise documentation so awful? Um, it's interesting. Documentation uh, <laughs> is something that might seem sort of unimportant to people or sort of tedious. But, you know, in a world that's been eaten by software, documentation is basically the way we have of capturing how pretty much everything works underneath the hood. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit as an expert in the area, uh, why is so much enterprise documentation of how things work uh, so awful? Uh, they're probably it's not as bad as I make it out to be, mind you. Uh, the uh, I, I did uh, exaggerate for some effect in that article, but uh, but to some degree, 
everybody has to write, everybody who's involved with software has to write documentation or at least has to make sure documentation is written. Otherwise, no one will be able to use it. And, and the, your, the guys who take over for you, uh, when you leave, won't be able to pick up and, and, and maintain, maintain what you've done. So we need the documentation, but not everybody enjoys writing as their primary way of communication or primary task in, in, at work. So um, everyone's got to do it, but some people see it as uh, just a, a, uh, a an add-on. Well, it's just a chore I have to do. After I finish writing this code or after we put this UI together, I have to put some documentation on it too, so let's get it done. And it probably won't get done that well. Or as I described, I think, in the article, um, it, you have complex software that, that uh, users will come to from different different places and with different expectations and to... And it's changing because there are new modules being written and 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 uh, and and pushed out to production rather regularly, updated probably more often than the than the documentation itself. So it's not at all clear. Or it's 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 difficult to create a system where um, where you can be confident that the latest releases uh, actually are documented properly and that users can find the documentation that's appropriate. AWS has a great system. If you notice in the URL they, of all their documentation pages, there will be a, usually, I think there's usually a date, but there's also the word, oh, I can't, I think the word is current or latest, maybe latest, I can't remember. But in the URL itself, you'll see, is this the latest version of this documentation? Which gives you confidence that it's maintained and it's changed when necessary and that you've got the latest, greatest version. So a lot of thinking and a lot of money has to be has to be poured into documentation to make sure it works well. And not everybody has that, especially open source projects where they're working on a shoestring, and uh, they they uh, they may just be doing it as a as a hobby on 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 behalf of of mankind to to help humanity, and they don't have the time and the energy to also do good documentation. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing that, I actually um, I looked into the um, AWS documentation following through. I think a link in your in your article. Uh, and it is it is really good, and it is this just inherent problem where that's you know things are constantly changing, uh, and how do you keep up with the documentation is just a, a problem that people have, and having having sort of timestamps uh, might seem like a sort of detail, but that's actually really important, even just for searching your own documentation to know what you should update and and what what's fallen behind. We we actually had yeah uh, a recent experience with a customer who was like you know I. I, I was looking at this article and it was updated just a week ago. And actually, uh, we use we use Intercom, which is very good for our help center. And uh, the little statement that they had was updated over a week ago. It was actually like a two year old document. <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> well, it was over a week yeah, at one point, but it, and it, it is still it, over a week, I guess. <laughs> sort of issue because you know, giving people confidence, you know, which is presumably the reason they said over a week ago because they didn't want you to be embarrassed that something was old. Uh, is actually really like you don't want to be misleading yeah. at all when it comes to this kind of thing, because because of the inherent problem that documentation no. will always probably be behind what you're actually doing. And so actually, the more clues you can give someone who's hunting around for solutions about what they're really looking at uh, is actually helpful to them. Uh, and then they can tell you, oh, it's old. Uh, this needs to be updated, things like that. Right, right. Well, I often actually see documentation that's incomplete because I'm often teaching topics for relatively new technologies where the documentation isn't there yet. So I'm, I'm in fact, sometimes I'm actually creating the documentation. So that, that's happened too. Uh, so I, in fact, one of my very early jobs in this career, which lasted about uh, a week, 
because I just, I, I, they, they, what they wanted me to do turned out was just not something I was ready to do yet. But it was a very large company in Europe, which shall remain nameless, uh, involved in a very cutting edge technology, which as far as I know is still not perfected six years later. Um, and they wanted me to write the API documentation, that is to, uh, to, to uh, write for developers how they could interface with this particular technology. Uh, I first, uh, I remember, again, this is very early in my career, and I'm not a developer, I'm a sys administrator, um, but I remember Googling what is an API, <laughs> just to give you an idea of how unprepared I was for that task. And, and then uh, I basically had access to the, uh, to the syntax and nothing more. So someone has to write that stuff, uh, but it's it, it, I, I felt very, very, very urgently uh, how difficult a task it can be to write it well. And actually, I've got I've got a question about that. So you you made this transition in your career to being a sysadmin and also to to um, creating content. How did you get involved with Pluralsight? Uh, that they asked me that once. I remember um, about six months after I joined, it was a, a friend of mine. Uh, someone I actually never met personally, but I, we were friends and colleagues uh, uh, remotely. Uh, we were working with for the same company. He suggested at a certain point that that I had the perfect skill set for for the kind of thing that Pluralsight was looking for, and he put me in touch with one of their acquisitions editors. Back then, that's what they called them. They've changed the title now, um, and we were a good match. Pluralsight is a fantastic company. They they are extremely well run. They they treat their authors, and I think they treat their 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 customers also really really well. Um, and uh, they were looking, they're, and they're still actively looking for subject matter experts in in uh, a lot of technology-related fields who have the ability to create video content. Um, I had created video content, uh, Linux-based and AWS-based in the past, um, and uh, this just it was a good match. But I'll um, I'll add what I what I told them one of their vice presidents uh, when they asked me six months later why I why I came to Pluralsight. Uh, there was an article that I had read, why, why Pluralsight resonated with me when, when this friend of mine mentioned it, why it clicked and said, yeah, yeah, Pluralsight, maybe that's a place to go. Uh, so there was an article I'd read a couple years before that I think the title was, it really stuck with me, The World's First Millionaire Teachers Now Exist. Now, I should <laughs> preface to say that I'm not a millionaire teacher nor anywhere close, <laughs> but the, the title stuck with me. Because Pluralsight handles, along with other companies too, they handle the question of education at scale really, really well. You create a course, you create uh, 20, 30 videos covering an hour and a half, two hours, and you do it as well as you can with a, with a really well thought out curriculum and it's been well edited by your peers. Uh, and then you, you make it available to, for anybody to stream on demand anywhere on the internet. At a, at, a, at a fairly low cost, for certainly for someone on North American salaries, the, the, what they charge, what Pluralsight charges for a monthly subscription is, is, is pocket change. It's not true if you live in Africa or India, perhaps, but certainly if you live in the, in the West. So um, the scale makes it so that anybody who wants that particular skill right now, he's working on a project and he, he or she can't, uh, uh, can't uh, figure out a problem, they can use the search engine in Pluralsight or one of the other providers and find a video very quickly find that that'll solve that problem specifically they can get to it very quickly so they make it's it's available so easily and, and readily to so many people you've got scale there are i think there are seven billion people in the world and and uh, an awful lot of them seem to want to learn about technology 
and they can they can uh, you can you can have whereas uh, in the in the good old days you could have 30 students at a time in a classroom. Now I could have well I'll tell you um, in a given month I my videos on Pluralsight are viewed by I think around 9,000 people. Now 9,000 unique people are view my videos. That's uh, they they'll view my content about 4,000 hours of my content in a given month. That's a, 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 a tremendous reach. So of course, if everybody is paying their, their subscription, then there's a potential for teachers who are more successful than me to actually make a million dollars a month, a million dollars a year. I don't know if anybody's making a million dollars a month. Um, but uh, so that, that title of that article just stuck in my mind. I said, well, it, it makes sense. Scale is something we understand. And, and if, it's, if it's executed well, then it's something that's respectable and, and useful. It helps the world. And why not give it a shot? So I did, and it worked out very nicely. Yeah, it's it's really interesting this issue of scale. I think I think people who are sort of you know coming into the technology world now might take it for granted that you can sort of stream videos uh, and reach the whole world. Uh, this was not true even just twenty years ago, really. Right. Um, and uh, it really has changed the way you can go about solving problems both in your career and your life. So the idea, you know, that again, like it's, I'm just only mentioning it because it's something that we take it for granted. But like, if you want to know how to fix your faucet, you can go on YouTube. Right. 20 years ago, you had to call a plumber. Uh, or, you know, if you wanted to fix an object that was broken or wasn't functioning properly, you had to read an instruction manual. And, and if, I, if I'm correct, so the, the sort of video content that you're talking about is, is it it's sort of screen captures of you doing things and talking yeah. over them to show Mostly. people? Mostly. Yeah, it's... it's It'll be slide decks and, and screen captures of, of, of demos, uh, but my face doesn't show up on the screen mercifully. <laughs> the, the, world, the, the world's a safer place without my face on the screen. There are some authors on, on Pluralsight actually who do uh, have uh, very nice green screen uh, setups where they have their own face. and Well, they have faces that are worth seeing. Let's, <laughs> let's just uh, give them the credit. Um, it can be more engaging to actually see a person's face when you're, when you're, when you're doing it. I couldn't. I mean, when, if, you're, if I'm... If, if I'm worrying about uh, being presentable on screen at the same time as remembering commands and typing them without messing up my typing while also sticking to the curriculum. And, and I, I just, I can't do that much at once. <laughs> I have uh, I did, okay, but that, but then you work with what you have. <laughs> uh, moving on to the next part of the interview. Um, so you at one point became an author of books. Uh, yeah. and I was wondering if you could talk about how, how uh, you know, you've explained how you got into Pluralsight a little bit. How did you get into uh, book publishing? And you've, you, I should mention you've had a couple of books published with Manning uh, Publications, which is, you know, one of the top shelf technology book publishers. How did, right. how did you get into that? Um, well, well, first of all, I should uh, add that before Manning, there was this, this company called LeanPub, a, a sketchy site they have somewhere. I won't talk about it much because, you know, but the, uh, at, to, uh, I believe the first book I put on LeanPub was, uh, well, I, I, I believe that was up before I signed a contract with Manning. Oh. Uh, I may have the timing off a little bit, but, but um, uh, it was a, a uh, I think it was called Teachers, no, it was... Um, what was it called? It, it was a, a a guide to the uh, the Linux Professional Institute's um, LPIC 101 and 102 certification. Uh, the I wrote it quite quickly based on on the content I, I had used for a video course on the same topic. Wrote the book up in less than a month and decided to self publish. And I used LeanPub 
very productively, I think, and, and the sales were, 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 were respectable, nothing spectacular, but it caught the attention of A-Press, the publisher A-Press, and they uh, offered me a contract and they bought it. And since then, um, it has, according to uh, what they call BookScan, is a, is a, uh, a tool that the Nielsen, the Nielsen company tracks the sales of, of books in the United States. So according to BookScan, it has sold a total of, I believe, 41 copies in the last four years. Oh my. That you heard that right. That's 41. So A-Press didn't, uh, you know, it didn't work out that well as far as numbers go, but they're great people at A-Press. Um, but nonetheless, that uh, that did start at LeanPub, and and uh, and I have a couple of books that are actually active on LeanPub now, which I'm very happy about. But uh, so, um, but it, it it's that the versatility that it offered me was uh, was something that was very attractive that I could uh, use Markdown, which is I do all my writing in Markdown, and just uh, con to convert a Markdown document to anything, and then do anything with it, especially selling it on the LeanPub platform itself. But soon after that first book, I think I think if I have my timing right, I, I did um, a, a make an offer of a, a a project proposal to to Manning, and we discussed it at great length uh, and changed it quite uh, quite violently by the time actually the we, we came to our contract. But uh, they they take Manning takes their planning very seriously. They'll have editorial board meetings which last hours. They're painful, but they're very productive. They take a long time. They, they seriously think, what do our potential readers need and how can we give it to them as quickly and as effectively as possible? And they'll, they'll hash it out. How should we organize the book? What should the book be about? How should it be focused? And they really do their absolute best to create a, a book that is um, that is as perfect as possible for the the people who are going to be buying it and using it, and so I have to give them a lot of credit for that. Um, I wrote uh, two books with them, the one on Linux and one on AWS, and uh, and the process was a uh, uh, was painful, but it was a very very productive process. I'm I'm, I'm happy I went through it. Uh, that was uh, I think it was a natural progression. I've always written, I, as I joke somewhere in my profile, uh, I've been writing since I was. Uh, since I was able to hold a crayon between my fingers, and the 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 downs the 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 punchline is that uh, but the the uh, my childhood home the walls of my childhood bedroom have since been repainted, um, <laughs> but the but but I have been writing for a long time and I uh, and it was a natural fit the the technology skills I was learning and and teaching uh, went well with uh, with with uh, describing them through through the word, uh, teaching through uh, through writing. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much for sharing that story. That's, uh, that's great. Uh, you know, particularly for our listeners who are thinking about, you know, becoming book authors themselves to hear, uh, you know, the, the different paths that people can go down and the choices that you have to make along the way. Uh, one, one of the things that we always talk about, like one of our, one of the things we love to hear about is lean pub authors getting snapped up, uh, by, uh, conventional publishers, you know, and so self-publishing can become a way into the world of conventional publishing. Uh, and sometimes when people get snapped up, they come back, uh, sometimes, yes. sometimes they, and, yeah. and most importantly, the, um, the idea it, it to, I think for people to absorb is that it's actually not an either or. Uh, and I think this is a lesson that kind of had to be learned uh, over the last sort of 10 or 15 years as sort of self-publishing has become more respectable. But uh, I don't know if that lesson needs to be taught so well anymore. Like when we, particularly when we have sort of younger authors that come onto LeanPub, they just don't, they're like, of course I can both self-publish mm -hmm. and be a conventionally published author. The two, they're just two different types of projects. And, you know, for example, 
Uh, you mentioned you had, you know, for one of your one of your books published with a conventional publisher, it didn't have that many sales. But then again, you've been able to say, here, I've got this book on your, you know, CV, uh, yep. you know, for all this time. And so for a lot of people, um, you know, in their in their journey to building their online platform as an author, getting a conventionally published book actually isn't about the sales primarily. Right. It can be about, sure. you know, improving your profile. And so for those of our, for some of our, our authors who are um, sort of independent consultants in various areas, having a published book is like gets them clients, uh, you know, and we, you know, actually, it's, it's funny. So back when we were bootstrapping LeanPub, my uh, co-founder Peter had published a book with Manning and actually my co-founder Scott had published uh, a book as well. And um, someone pirated both books and hmm. then discovered that Peter and Scott worked together. Uh, and we got a client who we made a great deal of money uh, from over the years because of the pirating of these books. It's <laughs> um, hilarious. Uh, yeah. And, and it, it's just, it's just a sign that like, you know, having, uh, I don't know what's the right metaphor, like having a lot of hooks in the creek <laughs> is the best way to catch fish. Um, and, uh, this is true in a lot of areas. And like, if you're, if, if you're, and for example, actually one of the things I wanted to touch on that was really interesting to me in, in what you said, it, it might've sounded like a detail, but you'd produced this video content, uh, and then realized you could actually package it up and make a book out of that as well. And that's, that's something really important because, um, you know, on, on LeanPub, we actually have the concept of online courses. Uh, so you can create a MOOC on LeanPub, um, and Part of our hypothesis and one of the reasons we built this into our, our platform uh, was that someone who's written a technology book actually is sitting there on contact that can presumably be transformed into a course where someone can get a certificate of completion and then have kind of social proof of what they've learned. Um, and so the idea that, you know, you've got content in one form, it actually can be transformed uh, into content in another format uh, and reach more people. Who might have you know sort of there's some people who like books there's some people who like video courses there's some people who like MOOCs um you know and and you know sort of sort of multiplying your your content across these different avenues is actually a really important way of, of reaching people absolutely and, and also the idea that you can well reduce reuse recycle you can you can make multiple uses out of a single piece of content so this this uh, course that i was preparing for and i was writing content for a course and then the course didn't work out so I could re easily repurpose it in, into the into a book, and within a couple of days, really, I had it in shape, and I had it on LeanPub, and I was it was selling already. But more than just the selling, it was it was uh, I just yesterday published a part of it as an article on FreeCodeCamp.org. Uh, on their uh, they have a, I guess you can call it a blog, but it's it's a it's a a, a repository of, of of thousands of of uh, how to articles on technology. Um, so it's been seen in 24 hours uh, more than 200 times. So I know from my own Twitter followers and, and uh, LinkedIn connections that the, the large majority of people who are interested in my content are from uh, what I guess sometimes they call the developing world. I don't know what's developing and what's not, <laughs> but I don't want to start start you know, stigmatizing countries. But, but certainly countries where, where English is not the first language, there's a thirst for this kind of content, and there are smart people who are consuming it at prodigious amounts. And when I put, when I publish an article, and when lots of other people publish similar articles or courses or books, uh, they're consumed and they're they're providing a tremendous benefit in ways you couldn't foresee. So I have a little piece of throwaway content that that I was I could have thrown away, but I've repurposed, and it's and it's having an impact. It's it's uh, and and because of 
platforms like LeanPub and, and uh, like Free Code Camp. So actually, I, I had a specific question I wanted to ask you about that. Um, this, is, so this has actually turned into a, a different kind of interview than, than I was envisioning because, uh, you know, you've got such, the, such a wide kind of experience uh, with creating and disseminating informational material. And you've been there, you know, to see these changes over the last few years. And so, so we've talked about Pluralsight and we've talked about, you know, self-publishing on LeanPub and we've talked about, you know, conventional publishing and, and how, that, how that process can go, how it can be very planned or unplanned, things like that. Uh, but you've also, you also publish articles on freecodecamp.org and you've been transitioning, you've been transferring your articles from Medium right. to Free Code Camp. Uh, and actually, I wanted to ask you specifically about that because this, the decision, I mean, I, you know, I, I sort of, you know, people talk about having your eggs in many baskets and I had the metaphor of having many hooks in the creek. But, you know, it's not necessarily right to be everywhere. Uh, we're actually planning to transfer away from Medium ourselves, and we have our own reasons for that, and they might be the same as yours. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit. Well, about first of all, the articles, most of the articles are still on Medium, but I, I, I posted them also to, to Free Code Camp, and new articles I'm posting more or less exclusively to Free Code Camp. Um, so I have nothing against articles being on Medium. They, they, they were a nice medium. <laughs> they, they, uh, they had a very nice UI, and, and uh, they, they allowed us to retain full ownership and control over the articles. They had great tracking tools also, so we could see who was coming and, and how many. Um, the reason that large publications like Free CoCamp and uh, Hacker Noon moved away from Medium is because Medium was moving towards a paywall. They wanted the premium content and as much premium content as possible to be behind the paywall so only paying users got to see it. And when, when I write content, when I, when I publish an article in, on a free, freely available uh, platform like, uh, like Medium was, um, I want it to be free. I want as many people as possible to be able to access it and use it. And, and then they can, uh, I, I have to admit, I'm not entirely altruistic. I, my, my, one of my goals is that they should follow links back to my content, which is paid, you know, the plural side or my books. But really, I do passionately want it to be available to as many people as possible so they can use it. And Medium is moving away from that. And the other thing is, of course, in the tech world, um, and perhaps in the larger society, there, there's a, a, a distrust of large technology companies. And Medium is owned by Twitter, which does not have the best reputation for privacy, respect, and, and, uh, and uh, other decisions they may make. Perhaps they're innocent. <laughs> perhaps uh, we, we overdo it, but, uh, or perhaps not. So um, Free Code Camp is, is a, an organization that is genuinely free. They don't even allow advertising on the site. And their goal is completely idealistic. They just want to provide technology training to as many human beings as possible without any barriers. And uh, I'm very comfortable having my content there because it's because uh, I, I like that. Uh, I, I subscribe to that ideology. Yeah, it's, it's really it's really interesting. You bring up the sort of distrust of big technology companies um, and, you know, Medium being owned by Twitter. One of the reasons, and this is sort of personal, this isn't, you know, because of LeanPub's blog, but it's because of my own posts. I, I started seeing the sort of, they, 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 pro they make it look like it's a mistake if you don't choose to be behind the paywall. Right, uh, they, right. They're sort of very aggressively prompting you to do that. And the thing about being behind that paywall is that really what Medium is setting up, as I understand it, is a situation where they're picking winners and losers based on internal algorithms. And it, it's, it's sort of like, maybe this dates me, but in the olden days, you kind of searched for stuff and sort of trusted that, you know, <laughs> there wasn't too much steering going on in the background right. to in one direction or another. 
And particularly with Twitter now, they have this distinction between home and latest tweets. So it used to be Twitter was just latest tweets, and now they have this concept of home, which they'll actually, if you choose latest tweets, they'll just move you back to this home concept uh, where they're deciding what you see. Right. It's not the right. people that you follow who tweet and that's what you see. Uh, there's something else going on there. And, you know, we know this from the political realm where people can go down these rabbit holes in YouTube and things like that. But, you know, the idea that it, it just seems to me that there's a threat to the promise of having all this wonderful educational content available, often free to people all around the world to help learn things and develop their careers. And this idea of being steered by these big technology companies does seem, it's just, I, I haven't like sort of worked out a theory of it, but it does strike me as a threat to the independence that's promised uh, by, right. by yeah. places like free. Yeah, they could, hurt, they could be really hurt. I mean, not just Twitter, but Google, if there are plenty of rumors going around that, that Google is actively subverting the objectivity of their search engine. I, mean, I, I can't prove it, and I'm not trying to prove it, but, but there are many, many, many rumors that are certainly flying around. And if commercial interests and very parochial commercial interests govern those, uh, those algorithms and the, 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 uh, the, the objectivity of, of, the, of the search engine, then there will be a large chunk of the internet that will be disenfranchised. It'll simply disappear for all intents and purposes. Back in the good old days, before Google and before Yahoo, or before Yahoo was a major player at any rate, uh, the, you really, it, it was, the internet was like a, a phone system without a phone book. You either knew about the place or you didn't know about the place. So there were blogs who achieved, acquired followings and became influential just through word of literally mouth or email. There's no other way to find it, but they were independent and they could say whatever they wanted to say and have any guests they wanted to have on their sites. There was, it was clunky and it was definitely imperfect because it was hard to get a big following, but at least it was in, under your control and there were certain advantages. We're, not go, we're never going to go back to that, I don't think. I don't think, for better or for worse, that's, those days are gone. But it is concerning that, uh, that we may be subject to a, a kind of dark tyranny <laughs> of a way, in, in a way that uh, we, we may not even be able to define properly, much less control. So will people find solutions? Humans are, are very, um, very resourceful, and, uh, and technology is very powerful. So maybe there will be ways of working around it. I know Tim Berners-Lee, uh, the founder of the, the World Wide Web, he is working on his uh, new web. I can't remember what he calls it offhand. Maybe you, you remember, but his, he, his idea is to allow to create a new network within the Internet that allows all users to completely control their own content. And, uh, and he hopes that through that, we can once again uh, control our conversations and, and, and uh, have, have more of a say in, in how we are surfaced and how we appear to the rest of the, uh, the, rest of the Internet. But there are problems. It's a, it's, a, it's, an, it's a mind-bogglingly large environment, the Internet, and no human could have, could have dreamt of it even 30 or 40 years ago. So there are going to be problems as it grows, and there are heroes, and maybe there are villains also. But it's, uh, it's something we should certainly be aware of, that the, 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 the ability, the, the right to, to, to speak and to publish and, and to uh, be able to publish to any community we'd like to is not an absolute right, and, and it's not guaranteed. On that uh, somber note, with a hint of optimism, uh, moving yeah. on to the next part of the uh, interview, uh, 
So we've we've talked about the various types of content that you produce. Um, what are you working on? Now? Lots of things. At, at any given time, I might be signed on to five or six different projects, and I I'm pretty good at pivoting. You know, when 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 I have to wait for somebody else to get back to me to respond to something, then I can just pivot for a couple of days to something else. Um, one of them is uh, is a I think it's public knowledge, uh, LPI, well, which, sorry, I, I'm not allowed to say that, Linux Professionals Institute. The LPI is a, uh, the, 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 uh, the manager of the Linux Professional Institute keeps telling me that, uh, that there are, there are, um, uh, well, there are copyright issues, or, or not copyright, sorry, the, the, what, what is it? It's a <laughs> trademark, uh, probably. Trademark, yes, that's it. It's a, there are trademark issues because there are too many other organizations that have those the the acronym LPI, so they don't want to get into that. Their lawyers want them to describe the the uh, the, the organization as Linux Professional Institute. They're a certification institute, a nonprofit, uh, distribution neutral organization that creates certifications for so far for mostly for Linux um, technologies, but they're actually branching out to uh, internet security. So they are creating a new certification um, for on, on the general topic, not tied to Linux specifically, but for all operating systems, the topic of Internet security. So I'm actually working with Wiley on a book that will cover that certification. And what's it like working with um, Very different. Well, it's different because it's a different sort of book than I was writing for Manning. Manning, we were trying to create a market uh, we're trying to, to envision an, a market, I should say, uh, and then fit the book to it. In Wiley's case, I'm writing certification books. I've written two certification books for them already on AWS certs, and that's a lot more straightforward. They have, they're an old company and very established, and they have uh, a, a, a profile of what they want their, tech, their, their certification guides to look like, and you just have to follow the profile. And there's not nearly as much peer review or editorial review. They have editors, don't worry. They have editors going through every word many times, but not nearly as much as they had at Manning. So it's a much lighter hand on you in a way. Um, not that you have a whole lot of freedom to be extra creative. I throw gags in sometimes uh, into my books, and I'm, I'm curious to see if they pass through the editorial system because some of them are you know, pushing it just a bit. But uh, they, they do let some through. Um, but it's uh, I, I like them. They, they are... Uh, uh, they, the publishers don't tend to be crooks. They're they're decent people all around, as far as I've seen, and they are they're 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 better than just not crooks. They're actually nice people, uh, good good talented people to work with. So I'm, I've been happy with Wiley. That's my that's I guess that's my major project right now. Um, uh, this this uh, this this uh, security certification. We usually like to end the podcast by asking a couple of questions about LeanPub. Uh, do you remember how you found your way to probably Google? That's my guess. Um, I don't, or well, it's a long time. I was, I had published books, um, self-published books with through Lulu um, for many years, actually. And um, it there might have been, I might have been reading an article about Lulu that also mentioned LeanPub. It might not have been Google, actually. But it's a long time ago, and I'm, I'm very happy I made that connection. And uh, the last question I always like to ask is, um, if there w was one thing we could fix for you or one magical feature we could build for you that would improve things for you? Uh, what would you, can you think of it? Uh, I don't know. It's, um, you, the platform is very good. The, the platform gives me everything I need, except, you know, more readers, <laughs> but that's, that, that, that's, uh, that, that's your challenge too. We are all looking for more readers. Uh, and it's, uh, and if my books don't have as much as many readers as I'd like, it could be the books just aren't good enough. 
<laughs> maybe I should be writing better books. Um, so I can't blame you for the uh, the the, uh, the if 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 there aren't uh, uh, five hundred thousand readers buying my book every month, I guess it's more my fault than yours. So I don't know. I, I'm I'm happy with the platform. I'm uh, it it, uh, it gives me a lot of versatility, uh, and it uh, and and it takes Markdown, which is great. What what more can you ask for than than uh, just being able to to handle Markdown flawlessly? Yeah, thanks. Thanks for sharing that. Um, uh, yes, uh, getting getting readers is the secret sauce of yeah. <laughs> of publishing success, and 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 we we do what we can. Um, you know, uh, it's it's hard to know what's going to succeed and what's going to fail. Of course, if if you, if you could predict it, you know, yeah, everybody, I'd be, I'd be I'd be in a different a different career probably. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but um, one thing I would say actually is that you know, for people listening, if you can write books on certifications, that's actually like if you've if you've gone through a process of getting a certification of some kind, like it basically any exam, like and this is sort of well known, like you know with the LSAT or or the GMAT or or things like that, people really like to read those books because they have a very specific reason for coming to the book, and and they are they're sort of easy to find through searches. So actually, like yeah. said, like if any, anybody looking to sort of like get a start in self publishing, if you've if you've basically taken any kind of exam at all and succeeded at it, write about it. There's other people out there who are taking that exam who don't know anything about it, who are desperate. Right, I would add, by the way, to that, that not only um, do you, you might have the technical background uh, to, uh, to write such a, a guide to a certification, but you shouldn't let your, um, your, your, your insecurities stop you sometimes, and not everybody should write books, but a lot more people can than do. I just read an interview this morning with Linus Torvalds, the fellow who made some uh, reputation for himself creating Linux and Git, mm -hmm. uh, he has some, he has some uh, some uh, quite a portfolio to go for him, and he says he still suffers from imposter syndrome. Is he really qualified to do the things that people want him to do? And if if Linus Torvalds is worried about imposter syndrome, is he really qualified? Then then uh, then I think if we feel, I, I certainly feel it sometimes. Do I really? have the uh do I, am i really qualified to write about ansible uh, so i mean again you have to make sure you're 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 accurate what you write is accurate and you have to be careful and do all your due diligence and do all your research but but if if you're insecure about it don't worry linus torvalds is also insecure about what he does yeah that's that's no that's great thank you for sharing that that's a sort of good lesson for us all to learn uh and uh the other the, the only thing i would add to that i guess is that uh one thing that took me far too long to learn was that you get better at things over time as you keep doing them yeah <laughs> and so yeah. if if you if you don't feel like writing is for you give it just give it you will get better over time and in particular um in a world where you can get feedback from people you know, on sites like, you know, we've, we've said some critical things about it, but like Twitter is a fantastic feedback right. machine. As long as you, you have a thick make, skin, as, as long, long as you have, have a thick, thick skin, skin, you need right. to, you do need to have a thick skin. You need to make liberal use of the mute yeah. button, uh, and, and things like that. But, um, uh, it's, uh, it can also be a very friendly place and, you know, our experience, you know, as authors ourselves, but also talking to, you know, through, through, uh, watching lean pub authors succeed over the years people want to help you make your book better. It's just true. Uh, they don't, yeah. they, 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 they don't sort of, it's very rare that someone gets mad when they see an area for improvement. They'll tell you, Oh, there's typo. You've got too many typos. They're not being mad mean, right. they're trying to help you. And this is a really like, you know, 
positive feature of this this World Wide Web that we yeah. built, that that that's been built around us, uh, including all the educational opportunities that it offers uh, to both the teachers to find students and for students to find teachers. So thank you very much, David, for taking the time to do this interview. I really appreciate it. It was actually really uh, nice to go in depth on the the various ways that, uh, you know, educational resources can be produced and disseminated uh, that exist now uh, that, you know, didn't necessarily exist all that long ago and weren't necessarily platforms for a success. Right. You could become. I'm still waiting for mine, but but it, it's actually been a great experience. It's, it's, uh, it's, uh, I enjoy and I appreciate the opportunity you're giving me, and it's been a great conversation. Thanks very much. And as always, thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of the Front Matter Podcast. If you like what you heard, please rate and review it wherever you found it. And if you'd like to be a LeanPub author yourself, please check out our website at leanpub.com. Thanks.